Your Steve Jones Show podcast is loading now. The Steve Jones Show podcast is sponsored by Sunbury Motors, North 4th Street in Sunbury, and Sunbury Motors Kia, routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf. Sports talk where your voice counts. This is the Steve Jones Show on News Radio 1070 WKOK. Now from the Sunbury Motors Studio, here's Steve Jones. afternoon thursday edition of the steve jones show april 18th 2019 news radio 1070 wkok sean carey here steve will be there in the sunbury motors studio in just a moment sunbury motors ford lincoln hyundai north 4th street auto plaza sunbury and sunbury motors kia on the strip routes 11 and 15 in hummel's wharf you can find us at stevejonesshow.com we're also on facebook you can give us a like there also follow us on Twitter, Twitter handle at Steve Jones PSU, and subscribe to our free podcast. You do that, we take the episodes and drop them right in your mobile device, smartphone, tablet. Just go to either iTunes, Google Play, or if you have an iPhone or iPad, if you have the Apple Podcast app, open that up and type in Steve Jones Show in the search bar, hit subscribe. That's it. Don't have to do the heavy lifting every day. We send the shows straight to you so you can listen to them anytime, anywhere. Plus, we have three months of shows always archived at stevejonesshow.com. So we'll be with you live till 5. Then we'll have the late day news roundup. Zach Klein will be at the anchor desk later today. CBS Sports Radio tonight after 7. Then at 8.05, we've got Phillies baseball. A start of a four-game weekend set in Colorado. The Rockies got their first look at Manny Machado since he signed with San Diego in the offseason. Uh, the big free agent splash for the Padres. Vote for better days for the organization, but not against Colorado. The Rockies swept the two-game series in San Diego. Now they dial into the Phillies. Bryce Harper, of course, signing with the Phillies last month after Machado joined the Padres, be it Coors Field, that series tonight. Colorado is going to send left-hander Kyle Freeland to the mound going up against Zach Eflin for the Fightins. The Phillies are coming off a very exciting 3-2 home win yesterday. A business person special against the Mets. They are first place in the National League East. Colorado, as we mentioned, uh, Philadelphia leading the uh, division despite only having played five home games uh, so far. Uh, Thursday is going to be the first of seven straight on the road. Phillies will return home one week from tonight, April the 25th, at that point they played 16 home games. That's Scott Kingry so far doing very well. Kingry went deep yesterday in the 3-2 win over the Mets. He's batting 480 so far on the young season, homered in two straight games. His only home runs of the season so far, but he is making the most of his opportunities. Scott said post-game yesterday, feeling good right now. I want to do whatever I can to help the team when I'm in the lineup. Kingry's contributions might be a bonus to Philadelphia, but Colorado relies on a perennial all-star to put up its big offensive numbers. Nolan Arenado 
zero home runs when the Rockies started the season 3-12, and but he has homered in each of the last three games. All Colorado wins. So how about for you tonight, 8.05 on deck and 8.40 first pitch. Scott Fransky, Kevin Franson will have it for you here on WKOK. So it'll be three night games in a row at Colorado, and then 2.35 on Easter Sunday will be the airtime here on 10.70 a.m. So we told you this earlier this month about uh, Bucknell forward Nate Sestina. It is official. The Kentucky Wildcats has signed Nate as a grad transfer for next season. The school made that official today. Sestina, 6'9", 245, averaged 15.8 points, 8.5 rebounds per game in his first season as a starter for the Bison, ranked 6th and 2nd in those categories in the Patriot League. He will receive an undergraduate degree in geography in geography next month. They're in commencement at Bucknell and Lewisburg, and he'll be eligible to play in the fall for Kentucky. Big Penn State news yesterday uh, that broke late afternoon. Quarterback Tommy Stevens entering his name in the NCAA transfer portal. We'll be talking more about that later in the show. Uh, later in the show, Nate Bauer uh, from Blue White Illustrated will join us, and we'll have some baseball talk as well. Uh, we'll be talking with New York Times national baseball writer Tyler Kepner. Tyler has released a new book called K, A History of Baseball in 10 Pitches. And we're scheduled to have Tyler uh, on with us later this hour. And we'll have Nate Bauer with us uh, next hour. And of course, we will wrap up the week tomorrow with Steve's brother, Kevin Jones. Kev will check in from Connecticut as we start the weekend. You can email us anytime. Steve Jones at WKOK.com. Let us know where you're listening. Any type of question you have, sports-related, Penn State football-related, of course, here at your service with our email, stevejones at WKOK.com. So we'll take a quick break, and I'll be right back. Steve will check in from the Sunbury Motors studio, talking baseball, Penn State football, and much more here on the Steve Jones Show on News Radio 1070 WKOK and WKOK.com. Hi, this is Steve Jones inviting you to be part of the 28th annual Truman H. Bernie Memorial Golf Tournament to benefit the Greater Susquehanna Valley YMCA. We'll kick off the event with a special broadcast on WKOK Tuesday, May 7th, starting at 3 at Penn's Tavern, south of Sunbury. Then Wednesday, May 8th, at the Susquehanna Valley Country Club Golf, the morning or afternoon flight, four-person scramble, and win great prizes. To sign up your team today and for more information, call the Sunbury Y at 570-286-5636. When it comes to car buying, there's the other guy's way, and then there's the SMC way. The other guys force you into a vehicle you really don't want. The Subway Motors way lets you take the time you need to browse, ask questions, and take the test drive and think on it. For over 100 years, the Merth family and all their employees have made your experience the most pleasant one you'll ever have. The other guys won't offer you the best price for your trade, no matter how much they say they will. The SMC way is their promise to provide you with the most money the market shows your vehicle's worth. The SMC way is to offer you all applicable factory rebates on new vehicles and generous discounts. Looking for a pre-owned vehicle? The SMC Way checks each vehicle in a 200-mile radius to determine the lowest price, then beat it. It's the lowest price promise, just part of the SMC Way. The choice is up to you. The other guy's way or the SMC Way. The SMC Way wins every time. Sunbury Motors Company in the North 4th Street Auto Plaza, Sunbury, and at sunburymotors.com. Selling more cars and satisfying more customers for over 100 years. I listen to Mark's promos. Number one, Mark has no ego. 
<laughs> Come on, Mark. You got to get real, man. Uh, you got to get real. <laughs> like, are you out of your mind? <laughs> uh, Mark just knows good radio. That's all. Yeah. You know? And and Mark Mark is good radio. So. <laughs> All right, so let's see. Is anything happened in the last 24 hours that we should deal with? No, I think we're good. We'll move we on. We good? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in line today at Lowe's. All right, went out this morning. I picked up... Um, Mulch? No, I'll do that eventually here. Um, I've uh, Actually, as soon as the show's over tomorrow, I'm leaving for Rochester. My son Mike bought a house. Wonderful. So, so I told him I would help him move in. So that's Saturday. So if I'm laid up someplace <laughs> on Monday, you'll know where I am. Like I'm in charge of moving your outdoor wicker furniture. We, we good? Okay. Right. So I'll carry the bags. <laughs> Golf bags. Uh, so I could do that. Um, but uh, but I was over today. I was picking up. Um, uh, I had to buy a new weed trimmer. Is the one I had last year finally after all these years went out. And I picked up some fertilizer. So I'm standing in line, right? And this guy looks over and he makes a, a sh- comment about the show, which was very nice. And then he looks at me and goes, Oh, God, it's too bad about Stevens. Now, this is the way it's been going for me the last two weeks. My first thought, and I didn't say anything at first, is that I thought, Yeah, boy, yeah, about Lamar. Thing, ah, Lamar didn't turn pro. And I went, no way. He's talking about Tommy. I've got all these problems with Stevens <laughs> everywhere I turn. If your last name is Stevens, I got to deal with you lately. Uh, all right, so let's get to Tommy Stevens. Obviously, it's going to be a primary topic uh, nationally because when you have a quarterback that has great potential, like Tommy Stevens has, and he has now put himself to be available out in the open market, it's going to draw a lot of interest. Uh, he will get, I'm sure, a fair amount of interest from some people about his name being in there. That said, what did I say the other day about a potential competition to quarterback? Let's see how it plays out. I'm in the same mode about this. Let's see how it plays out. Uh, obviously, if you're sitting there and you're talking about the Las Vegas money, the Vegas money would be on him obviously leaving. I mean, that makes complete sense. That's why he put his name into the transfer portal. But it also doesn't necessarily absolutely positively mean he's leaving. It's just, But it does mean he has to make a decision now as to where he wants to play his fifth year. I think the way everything lined up for him, you know, you know how the stars align in a certain way. You know, the easy phraseology there. He needed surgery. Uh, last spring, and or, you know, or sat out last round to get surgery, but he sat out last spring. Whatever it was, I guess he had surgery. Whatever it was, and so he couldn't go. Now they finally get him back, and then Nelson, uh, you can tell it's not quite right. I can tell that. It's like okay, so he had to sit out a period of time. So finally, they feel they have to absolutely do something about it. They do it in December, and they say, look, he's not going to play in the bowl game, and he'll be probably limited in the spring. Well, you time that up with the fact that it's his fifth year? Okay, now you're talking about just the pure timing of it. 
And he's looking around and he's saying to himself, okay, this is it. No matter what, this is it. Now, for James Franklin, so that's Tommy's point of view. Now, for James Franklin, you had a guy that was limited on reps in the spring, but I will tell you this, and I mentioned it in the Blue-White game broadcast, and I'll mention it again, that he did more on... um, he did more than I think people realize in the spring. And I'll be frank with you. I I felt in watching the spring, and I was at all but a couple of practices. I mean, I wasn't at the walkthrough. I, the, I missed the practice on the 13th of March because I was in Chicago doing basketball. Okay. Um, and... Tommy didn't do very much the first two weeks at all. He was out there doing shadow work, the whole deal work. Okay? That's fine. And then the last two weeks, he didn't do everything, but I think he did a lot more than people realize. And he had a little bit of rust, but guess what? The rust didn't last very long. I thought he looked really good, uh, especially throwing the deep ball. I thought he... I thought, when he was out there, he did very, very well. I also can tell you, in no uncertain terms, as I watched all of this play out in front of me, knowing that there was no game at the end of spring practice, I thought the staff handled it exactly the way I would handle it. There's no need to push it. Buy yourself some extra time with him. No need to put him through a rigorous situation now. No need at all. Because he's that valuable to your plans. He's that valuable to your program. Now you're saying, well, if he's that valuable, they should name him the starter. Well, yeah, I mean, do you name somebody a starter when they're coming off with an open position and coming off a of surgery? Look, you let it play out. It's okay to play out. Competition is good. It's healthy. Right? And I, you know, and being the fifth year guy that I think has received more praise and justifiable, by the way, justifiable praise. He's received more praise from James Franklin of any non-starter you can think of. Can you name another non-starter at Penn State that has consistently received more praise than Tommy Stevens has from his head coach? Over and over and over again, James Franklin praised him. And because the coaching staff did not want to push the envelope with him, that's called being smart. That's being wise. I mean, there's a segment of the population out there right now that thinks guys ought to skip bowl games, that it's wise for them. Why should they put it out there? They're going to go to the draft. Well, what's the difference between that and this? There's no game at the end of this. So they put him through a series of of elements that they were very comfortable putting him into without having to extend him all the way because there was no reason to extend him. But he got a lot more reps, and here's the next part. All of his reps, every single rep he took in the spring were with the first unit. All of them. He did not take one rep 
with the second unit when he was out there. Not one. All of his reps, every one of them, were with the first group. Some people have brought up to me, well, you know, James Franklin said, you know, back that he'd be with the first. Yes, you have to go out and run units out there. So somebody has to be in the first unit. Well, Sean Clifford obviously is the one running first unit most of the time. For obvious reasons. I mean, because somebody had to be out there. And again, how James Franklin and Ricky Ronnie handled this this spring, I thought was spot on and exactly how to handle it. There was no game at the end of spring practice. So why do you want to say, okay, you're how many months out from surgery? How many months out you are? Do you look around? I mean, to be honest with you, last year they kind of handled John Reed the same way. John Reed last year was handled pretty much the same way because they knew when it was go time, then they'd find out, okay, now, John, we're giving you the full time, or now it's been, you know, because John had a knee, you know, it's been 16, 17 months since you hurt that knee. Now, hey, boom, it's go time. And, you know, it took John a little bit, but then John turned in as the season went. John turned in a really good season. John's been spectacular this spring. They handled John Reed the same way. There was no need to get him out there, even though it had been a year since his surgery. So they put him out there in certain situations, certain moments, and they handled Tommy Stevens the same way. And every time Tommy went out and and worked, it was always with the first unit. Now, you had to sit down and have meetings with players. I don't think there's I understand completely the feeling that Tommy Stevens has that there's a line in the sand because I'm a fifth-year guy. I've got to start. I've got to put something on tape for people. I think all of us get that. I can also understand that for James Franklin, hey, look, first couple weeks of the the preseason, hey, we're going to turn you loose. We're going to let you go out there. And if you're the better guy and you win it, you're going to be the guy. But we're going to keep it open. But at the same time, you know darn well, based on everything James Franklin has said over the years, that Tommy Stevens was, and if he decides to stay, he's going to get every opportunity possible to win it. Because he's been loyal, he has stuck with this thing, he's been there. James has always appreciated it. Now, it's a little bit different than 2010, because obviously uh, in 2009, the 2008 season before the Rose Bowl, Pat Devlin, look, Penn State's in great shape at quarterback in 2010. Pat Devlin's a starter. Great shape. But Pat decided he wanted to transfer to Delaware right before the Rose Bowl at the end of the 2008 season. Well, that was a setback for Penn State. This is a little bit different because 
Yeah, Matt McGloin, former walk-on, and then true freshman Rob Bolden vying for it in 2010 as opposed to a scholarship guy that's already ingrained in the program in Sean Clifford. But let's see how this plays out. Taking your calls at 800-795-9565. This is the Steve Jones Show on News Radio 1070 WKOK. Now from the Sunbury Motor Studio, here's Steve Jones. Today's show brought to you by Sunbury Motors, 4th Street in Sunbury. Sunbury Motors, Kia, Routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf. You know, you watch a baseball game. And you might see a slider, a fastball, a curveball, duckleball, could be a splitter, screwball, sinker, changeup, spitball, cutter. I just named 10 pitches. I just named K, a history of baseball in 10 pitches by Tyler Kepner, and it is brilliant. Tyler, welcome. It is great to have you with us. Thanks so much for your time today. Oh, waiting for Tyler as we speak. Oh, we're still waiting. Okay, yeah. fine. That's a great intro. He, and he lost that was brilliant. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We'll smooth it over for the podcast. All good. That's all right. I'll just redo <laughs> it that way on the podcast when it comes time. Whatever makes life easy for you. No, no. Uh, a couple yeah, clicks whatever. and a bada bing, bada boom. That's fine. No problem. It's all good on this end. Ah. <sighs> Well, we'll continue talking about, uh, obviously, Tommy Stevens. But, again, if you sit back and have any doubt, I stood there. I watched it. And I thought to myself, now, how would I handle this? And to be honest with you, there isn't anything they did where I didn't sit back and say, nah, I liked, I really liked how they handled it. I thought they were smart with how they handled it. Handled John Reed the same way. I'll be honest with you, you know, now, did John Reed enter it thinking he was the starter? Well, I mean, you had Amani Oyewarie, then you had Tariq Castro-Fields. It wasn't like there weren't some young players there. But they handled it right. And uh, that's, uh, now it's up to Tommy. What do you do? Uh, you have to make the decision, you know, he has to make a decision. Uh, it's probably not just his decision. His family's going to be involved. I think everyone has now read the quote from his father. I got that. Uh, you know, coaches, it's one of the great unknowns that I think people are shocked. If we have, for example, Dave Cicchini here, we had Nathan Davis or Patrick Chambers or James Franklin, whatever, whatever it may be, Nick Saban, Dabo Sweeney. I think one thing that would, an item that would really be a big surprise to most fans is how often coaches have to talk with parents. I think a lot of people assume that, well, yeah, that happens in high school and that happens in junior high school. But no, once you get to college, it doesn't happen in college. Well, it doesn't happen in the pros. Uh, but in college it does. And there's a lot of contact between parents and a coach. I mean you want to keep you want to keep the phone open, the door open, whatever, because look, you've entrusted them entrusted their, their son in this case to you for years. 
All right, Sean, I'm going to redo the open. That's right. All right. And it was stellar. Yeah. It was stellar. Uh, I mean, it was just 24 karat. Else. I mean, it was just something else. Mic drop, walk off moment. Not really, but I liked it. Uh, in games of baseball, you'll see a slider, a fastball, curveball. You might see a knuckleball, a splitter, a screwball, a sinker, a changeup, a spitball, or a cutter. Yes, the 10 pitches of baseball. And the person who has brilliantly captured it, K, a history of baseball in 10 pitches, is Tyler Kepner. I know, Tyler, that was a rerun of what we did before, but that's what we have for you. Thanks for joining us. It's a great book. Thanks a lot. Really glad you liked it. Yeah, very much so. You had to interview, uh, what, about 300 people, including 22 Hall of Famers. It's one yeah. thing to sit there and give 10 basic pitches, but I don't think everyone realizes that everyone has their own way of going about it. So what did you learn along the way that even surprised you about this? Well, I learned a lot of um, you know individual things you know about how this guy did it, did it or how that guy did it, but um, really it just kept, kept reinforcing to me the the almost infinite ways that a pitcher can can learn um, to, to do something. I mean, like I say, there's 10 pitches, and there are, um, you know, 10 pitches I feel, I felt like, desert worthy of their own chapters, you know, they have a, a prominent enough place in baseball history, but um, within that, there are so many different ways to throw them, different ways to apply them, different reasons for, for doing so. Um, so just the, the continual creativity that these pitchers have, um, if they're smart about it, and most of them are, um, to continue to get better or, or try to unlock, uh, you know, whatever greatness is in them. Uh, This dates back to the beginning of the game. So what did it take for you research-wise to learn more about a Cy Young, maybe learn more about a John Richmond, somebody like that? You know, I had always wanted to utilize the Hall of Fame library because to me there is nothing, no possible library cooler than one that's just exclusively about baseball. Plus, you get to, you know, you're right there in the museum um, in, in Cooperstown, I mean, just off the side. So I went up there three times, I think, to uh, to do some research, and it was just incredible. I mean, you know, you go up there and you tell them what you're doing, and, and they bring you, like, everything ever written about Cy Young or, or Christy Matthewson, just volumes and volumes and, and you know, all kinds of uh, clip files and everything. So there was just a, a real treasure trove of, of information out there for me. It was really just a question of how to organize it, you know, how to how to how to read it and then you know use it and put it in the right place so I don't forget it, that kind of thing. Uh, just all the all the boring machinations of, of writing a book, but I'd never really done it before. So uh, you know, for for me, it was uh, it was just so much fun getting back into the weeds of uh, old time baseball history. Steve Carlton was not one that would talk with the media, as the fans in Philadelphia know. Uh, he, I think he talked with the media when he was in St. Louis with the Cardinals back in the 60s. But in the 70s, he was not a talker with the media. What did it take to get him to talk about uh, his famous slider? Um, well, I was lucky, actually, I guess, in that uh, one summer when I was in college. I used to do a little baseball magazine when I was a kid, um, and the Phillies were great. They would let me in to do interviews, so I got to know a lot of the Phillies people. And, and you know, my junior and senior year, I got internship at newspapers. But there was that one year in between um, where I actually worked for the Phillies, and I got to know some people there. 
And so when this project came about, they were able to, you know, reach out to him and and and, and kind of let his people know that, um, you know, that uh, maybe I was worth talking to, and and, and that it wasn't it was going to be something that he might actually enjoy. And um, you know, in talking to his his people or his person, his business guy, it was sort of just like, hey, you know, I'm telling the story of of. of Baseball through these pitches, and I I gotta talk to Steve Carlton if I'm going to talk about the history of the slider. I mean, he threw one of the best, one of the best ever. Mm-hmm. And you know what? In this situation, you just use everything you got, man. I'm like, look, he was my, and I wasn't lying. He was my favorite player growing up. He's the reason I got interested in pitching in the first place. Um, you know, I'm a big fan. So I wasn't I wasn't really approaching it as like the hard hitting journalist. I'm like, look, I'm a right. fan. I want to know how you did and uh, how you did what you did and uh, put it in a book. And he trusted me, and uh, we had a real nice conversation. I sense, and this sometimes it works the opposite way. You always want to be around somebody, you want to talk to them, whatever, and then they disappoint you. It sounds to me like a guy that didn't talk to the media often didn't disappoint you when you finally got the chance to really talk in depth with them. No, really, I, I was. I mean, I was just gonna gonna settle for whatever I could get. I'm like, well, you know, even if it's just 15 minutes, and, and we just talk about the mechanics of the slider, um, you know, I'll take whatever I can get. And we ended up talking for about 40 minutes, 45 minutes, just on. Uh, you know, until I was really done asking questions. So he was, uh, I mean, yeah, I kept, I could have kept going and going, but, you know, at some point it was like, <laughs> no. <laughs> at some point it's like, you know what, I, I've got three times as much time uh, that I said I was going to take from the man. He's, uh, you know, he can go on with his life. But no, he he was good. He, he, he kind of brushed me back a little at the start where he's like, you know, you're writing a book, I hear, so don't, don't, you know, people don't read anymore. And I said, well, you know what, like when I was eight years old, I tried to be Steve Carlton and, that wasn't working for me, so this is what I do best. And uh, you know, let's let's talk. And he was great. He kind of liked that answer. So then we went ahead and and talked. You had you also interviewed twenty two Hall of Famers along the way. Now look, there's a lot of you interviewed over three hundred people. But was there an insight into how they threw specific pitchers as Hall of Famers that you could tell that separated them to make them a Hall of Famer as opposed to being a workman like I'm on the pension plan? Uh, pitcher. <laughs> um, that's a really good question, and I, I, I guess I would say no because what I would do was I also interviewed a lot of people who maybe didn't who didn't make the Hall of Fame, but threw a pitch at let's say a Hall of Fame level. You know, like they could maybe do one thing um, really great, but they didn't have all the other weapons, um, or they just didn't have the longevity or whatever. And that's kind of what you find. Like you know, some of these pitches yeah. themselves. Um, might just be, you know, pitch for pitch might be better than uh, another guy's, or, you know, might be Hall of Fame worthy. Oh, you know, mm-hmm. we were talking like the, the screwball of Fernando Valenzuela, let's say, or even that uh, a gold closer for Cleveland on 300 saves named Doug Jones. He threw every yep. ridiculous changeup. Um, you know, and, and so one pitch, like if you put pair that changeup with uh, you know, uh, uh, Troy, Troy Percival's fastball or whatever. You know, then you would have had maybe a Hall of Fame cl- uh, closer in, in one. But so, um, no, it was really just. Um, I don't know if there was a great separator in terms of, of of how they worked or how they prepared or how they learned it or anything. And a lot of times, these guys were just ordinary pitchers, really going nowhere until they found that that one pitch. You know, if, if a teammate hadn't told Trevor Hoffman how to throw the uh, how to throw the changeup. We probably wouldn't wouldn't know much about Trevor Hoffman. He would have had a mediocre career. Um, you know, same thing with Bruce Sutter. He might never have made the big leagues if not for the split mm-hmm. finger fastball. The coach named Fred Martin taught him. Uh, well, I mean, you take a guy, for example, like Tim Wakefield. He'd been an outfielder. Well, he can't right. hit. Uh, that's kind of a bummer. He can't hit. <laughs> yeah. So he learn he learns the knuckleball. But whenever he got off kilter. 
with his knuckleball when he was with the Red Sox. They bring in one of the Necros, either either Phil or Joe Necro, to get him back on track. When you talk to knuckleballers, you know, Wilbur Wood, whatever it may be. I actually saw Wilbur Wood pitch, for goodness sakes. Uh, he started both ends of a doubleheader once. Uh, right, right. When you talk to knuckleballers, too, right? the, the specialty of that pitch, what is it about it where only another another knuckleballer can talk to you? Well, that was a really good uh, observation there because that's what they all say, and, and that's one of the reasons it's so hard to master because there's just so few people who understand it and, and, and understand um, not just the physical cues but, but the mentality that you need to um, go out there and throw the slowest pitch there is uh, to these great hitters and know that if it, if it's not if everything is not precisely correct and if you don't kill the spin um, as much as you're supposed to, um, the ball is either going to end up at the backstop or the seats. And so it takes it takes someone else who understands that, and 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 they, that's why they develop kind of a brotherhood. I mean, I love the story about how Steve Sparks, who was a knuckleballer with yep. Detroit and Anaheim and, and Milwaukee and some others, um, you know, George Steinbrenner called his agent before a playoff series, the Yankees and the Red Sox, and said, "Look, we're going to be facing Wakefield. We want someone who, someone else who throws the knuckleball to throw batting practice to our guys. Name your price." And and. Sparks told him no. He's like, you know, maybe I could have had a ten thousand dollars or uh, for one payday or for one day of work, but I just didn't want to do that to Tim. I felt like, you know, if if the Yankees were going to beat Tim, not Tim Wakefield, a fellow knuckleballer like me, they weren't going to get my help. Um, so I thought that was kind of cool. Like, you know, he could have taken an easy payday and just told Wakefield, hey, you know, like you you made more than me. My kids got to eat too. But uh, you know, he said, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to do that to a knuckleball fellow knuckleballer. I thought that was neat. Yeah, I, I, that was that was a great great part. Now Nolan Ryan, Nolan Ryan, when he was with the Mets, threw it a hundred plus miles per hour, but nobody on the planet knew where it was going. <laughs> I think that's fair. Right. But when he got to the Angels, he started himself on the path where he got control over that fastball. What did he tell you about how he gained control of that fastball? Well, he, you know, he had his moments with the Mets. Um, they eventually got got tired of waiting for it, and, and, and it just, you know, sort of ran its course there. Uh, he well, he won saved. a World Series game in relief, so let's not forget right. that. Yeah. Right, game three of that, of, of that World Series in 69, and then I think he got the last out, and he saved the, the playoff series against against uh, Atlanta. Could you imagine right. if they had just kept Ryan and Seaver together through the 70s? I mean, uh, you know, oh. every Mets fan, every Mets oh, fan wondered that. Yes. Um, yeah, but there was a coach named Tom Morgan who, who in Anaheim really helped Nolan um, smooth out his mechanics. And, and it's, it's, it's these coaches who, you know, appear intermittently throughout the book. I mean, you know, the, the same guy, uh, Tom Morgan, ended up helping a pitcher named Scott McGregor, who yeah. was really good for Baltimore for a while, um, who I remember because he shut out the Phillies, or my team, in the uh, <laughs> in the World <laughs> Series to end it. Um, but, he, yeah. you know, Tom Morgan came, took Nolan Ryan, and it was just a matter of, of getting him to not rush in his uh, in in his in his delivery, you know, to stay back and stay on top of the curveball, and and uh, you know, if you're rushing your delivery, you're not allowing your arm to catch up with your body, um, and just by keeping everything back where it was supposed to be, and 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 connecting with Ryan on that level, the mechanical level, it opened um, you know, it opened up everything for him. What did uh, guys like Sandy Koufax, Nolan Ryan, Pedro Martinez, what did all of them or John Smoltz tell you about the importance of the conditioning of their legs mean? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the legs, uh, obviously the foundation for <clears throat> for any pitcher. You know, Ryan was 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 famous for, for riding the bike after every game. I mean, I remember even for non-power pitchers, when I covered the Mariners in Seattle, um, when I first got out there, Jamie Moyer would just be out there <laughs> running laps around the kingdom, you know, over and over again. And, and eventually, I think his, his knees went. But, um, you know, at, at that point, Jamie was probably – 37 and he ended up pitching until the year he turned 50 um so you know and he, he didn't throw hard but yeah he had that foundation um yeah so that that's obviously a huge huge part of, of of a pitcher's arsenal um you know really for anybody i remember not pitching wise but i remember talking to lou Pinella back back then and uh he was always lamenting how you know the legs were the first to go he's like i could they kept hitting I, I could still recognize the pitch and everything else could work but but the legs just uh didn't allow him to, to, to continue on there eventually in his career. So, yeah, big part of it for sure. What about those who underwent Tommy John surgery, came back from it, and uh, they were able to thrive after that? Were there any common threads there? Well, it was interesting to talk to Tommy John, um, you know, himself. Not really, I mean, yes, about the surgery, um, but but also just about what what made him great and and you know the idea, the idea that he was able to pitch even longer um after coming back um you know and how he pitched off a mound every day um that was uh or he played catch every day at least i mean that was a, a big part of a lot of the older time guys you know about like conditioning your arm by by using it you know by throwing it not by not by conserving it you know not throwing to the point of, of pain or exertion every day but just you know throwing every day um you know, and, and and that was something that some of those older guys, uh, you know, really really wonder where that's gone. You know, why they're babying these pitchers um, so much, and and yet still seeing so many injuries. It's funny, a uh, little bit of trivia question. You know, the first the first guy with Tommy John surgery in the Hall of Fame is not even a pitcher. It's Tom. It's uh, Paul Mahler. <laughs> he had yeah, he, he yeah. also season the Tommy John surgery early in his career as a third baseman. But uh, the John Smoltz, of course, yeah. is in, and I'm sure there'll be many more too. Right, no, exactly. It's interesting. I remember in Tommy John when he pitched, he was an artist out there because he he would he would tantalize you. He put the he really was great at pitching on the outside part of the plate, and he put it like near the black. Then he yep. put it next pitch a half inch from the black. Then he put it an inch and a half away from the black. He was he was an artist of making you like look the ball go further out and further out and thinking you could get it. Right, and and that was you know, he doesn't quite understand why why his his wins his, his victories are, are not um, thought of as highly as a pitcher who struck out a lot of guys. Um, That's right. He didn't yep. he didn't dominate in in the fashion that we think of a dominator um, doing it. Um, I mean, one one season uh, <laughs> it was not a good season, but he made thirty four starts in nineteen eighty three. Try to wrap your head around Tommy John gave up two hundred eighty seven hits and he only struck out sixty five guys. I mean, in today's baseball, that would be – it just wouldn't compute. Give up 287 hits and with only 65 strikeouts. But you know what? He, won't, he was 11-13, and 430 ERA. Not great, but you know, pretty close to league average. I mean, that's that's 35 years ago. That's how much the game has changed. But in his better years, certainly Tommy would, would give up some hits because they put the ball in play. But most of the time, it was weak contact, and it was on the ground. And he would work quickly and pitch a lot of innings because he didn't have to throw a lot of pitches. And that kind of pitcher um, is is not uh, is not something we see a lot. And he was, of course, very effective. I mean, he was runner up for Cy Young uh, yeah. two two of his two years right after that surgery, seventy seven and seventy nine. Yeah, what I want to say is right in the neighborhood of two hundred eighty five wins or something like that, somewhere around there. 
Uh, yeah, two eighty eight. Yeah, okay, good. I, I was close. Uh, I've got to ask you. This will be the last one because I know there's a time constraint here. But I got to ask about Gaylord Perry. Uh, yeah. Jim Perry. Jim Perry did just fine without doing this. <laughs> but Gaylord Perry, you know, there's the old joke about Bob Euchre in Major League Vaseline ball hit the short. <laughs> <laughs> Gaylord Perry so, was, you know, he, he he was a trickster even in this process. He didn't really want to talk, so I had to pull an end around on him. I, I got a I got a press release that he was he was speaking as part of a, uh, you know, some golf tournament, some PR event on on a conference call to promote something, and 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 I, I got on that call and, and asked him a couple questions, and, and uh, you know, just basically cornered him and, and <laughs> got him to answer my questions. So um, nothing too bad, just to get just enough to get his voice in there. Um, but really, you know, he 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 provided his own voice. I mean, there's a guy who wrote the book, Me and the Spitter, in, uh, right. in 1972. And, um, you know, or 74, and, you know, he won a couple of Cy Youngs, and even if he wasn't throwing the spitter, he was in your head because of all of his uh, his ticks and gyrations on the mound where he was touching uh, his uniform and his neck and his hair and the bill of his hat and the back of his hat and everything. There's nobody else ever really been quite like him because um, he had a mental edge whether or not he was doing it, but most of the time he was. Right. You know, I mean, Mark Fidrich did a lot of crazy things on the mound, but not that. Uh, so. right. <laughs> right. He was talking to the baseball and smoothing out the dirt. A little different. Yeah. And I have no idea what he was saying to the baseball. So, all right. Um, <laughs> this was absolutely – the first of all, the book is great, but this is fascinating to talk with you, and I appreciate the time you gave us today. It was a lot of fun. No, thanks a lot. I always love talking baseball and talking pitching. Glad you guys enjoyed the book. Absolutely. The book is entitled K, A History of Baseball in Ten Pitches. Tyler Kepner, Phillies fan, deep down. Steve Carlton fan, deep down. We'll back more in a moment here on News Radio 1070 WKOK. Weekday afternoons, the Steve Jones Show talks Penn State sports. Congratulations to her because she won a national championship this weekend, and I think most of you didn't know it. Weekdays at 3 on News Radio 1070 WKOK and WKOK.com. You're listening to News Radio 1070 WKOK Sunbury. You can hear us anywhere in the world with the Sunbury Broadcasting Corporation app. 